0: This is an ABC podcast. This is Stories from the Pacific on ABC Radio Australia. Hello, welcome to Stories from the Pacific on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Bobby McCumber. For more than 2,000 years, the island of Banaba in Kiribati thrived with people. But for 80 years, the United Kingdom, Australia, and New Zealand mined phosphate there to make fertiliser. And almost all of the population was displaced, getting relocated to Rambi Island in Fiji. Today, only a few hundred people remain in Banaba. Now, there are talks to mine the island again. My guest today is Professor Katerina Tewa, who is a Pacific scholar and artist of Banaban descent. Māori, Katerina. Māori. Katarina, so much of your work focuses of course on Banaba. What impact did mining have on the land?
1: Yeah, the mining had quite a profound impact and I guess that's something that, you know, I'm trying to share more and more today because because we we know that mining happened and we know that land was taken and we know about the phosphate and the superphosphate fertilizer. But I don't think a lot of Banabans or, or a lot of Pacific people in general actually have firsthand experience of what it's like to dig up almost 22 million tons of land from six square um, kilometers and transport it across the Pacific. So essentially it leaves big, big holes in the landscape. It cuts the surface down from something that was around 80 meters above sea level Mm-hmm. And that, that's quite important because most of Kiribati is about two to three meters above yeah. sea level. So it's atolls. This is the one high island in Kiribati. The one high island <laughs> that people are willing to sacrifice yeah. for its natural resources, which makes no sense when you're looking for higher ground, particularly in the context of climate change and rising seas. So big holes left in the ground all over the island um you know the the rock face blasted and then literally starting with wheelbarrows and you know then with other big industrial um machines you know tons and tons of land and rock removed so what it means is when you go there and um you know most banabans don't actually get an opportunity to go to to Bonobo. um they know about it they've heard about it but only a few People, including people who live there now or who've lived there over the years have actually experienced the island. I've been there twice. It's sort of like you're walking inside the land rather than where the the top of the land used to be, where the Mm. surface of the island used to be. So it's like you're walking in and around and amongst pinnacles which kind of look like an exposed skeleton of... The land. Can you paint a picture of what Barnaba was like before mining? Yes. So, um, as you said before, Barnaba was inhabited for over 2,000 years, and it is right there in the center of the Pacific in what is historically known as a bit of a drought belt. Um, so the people who lived on Banaba, who um, originated from, you know, various migrations from Vanuatu, Samoa, other parts of Micronesia, uh, lived quite a, a challenging but very um, productive life on the island. Um, there's limited resources, but whatever they had, they managed to live off of very well. They were expert fishermen. Um, there were many different species of pandanus and coconuts thriving. Um, they have a local almond tree breadfruit. Um, so despite the limited flora and fauna, Barnabans had figured out how to live on this six square kilometer island and people had formed quite a deep um, and meaningful connection with the lands and the oceans uh, surrounding it. Um, so when mining started, it disrupted and deeply transformed um, that long history of connection that people had had to what they called Banaba, which it means the rock. So, mm. people from Banaba were kind, tiapa, uh, uh, the people of the land. And what that essentially meant was people of the rock. And they also described it as the navel, the center of their existence, or Teputo. Mm.
0: Your grandfather and great grandfather were forced from that beautiful home. What have
1: you learned of their journey to Rambi? What I understand is, by the time uh, Japanese occupation happened, right uh, after World War Two started, my great grandfather uh, Tanamo was put in the Japanese war camps um, and displaced uh, with all the Barnabans who were on the island, and and with some of the miners that had been left behind by Australia, and New Zealand, and Great Britain who were running um, the mining company and they were taken to work um, on Japanese camps. So by the time um, the war finished and um, New Zealand actually uh, took back the island from Japan, my great-grandfather and his family were put on a ship, um, they went to pick up other Banabans from other war camps, um, on Nauru and brought them to Tarawa. And then they sailed for Rambi, where the mining company had bought them this island of Rambi in the northern part of Fiji. And I understand from my father's stories that this was quite a traumatic mm-hmm. time for the Banabin people. A lot of people had been killed during the Japanese occupation, in cl- including a lot of mining workers who were of um Ellis Island and Gilbertese descent. So the Ellis Islanders uh, eventually became the uh, independent country of Tuvalu. So there were Tuvaluan and Gilbertese workers on the island who were killed, a lot of Banabans killed as well. So by the time around seven hundred people arrived on Rambi in nineteen forty five, they were quite traumatized and um quite stressed from The mining that had been happening for 40 years and Japanese occupation. And it was very convenient for the company to then be able to remove them to Rambi in Fiji, an island that they had already bought for them in advance because they'd been planning to remove the Banabans for some time to be able to access all the valuable phosphate that was in their home island. Um, And when they dropped them off on Rambi, they dropped them off with a few tents and a few boxes of food and then they left them. Okay. So Banabans is, have essentially been trying to survive um, on Rambi for quite some time. And I think I have to emphasize that um, the Fiji climate is quite different from the Banaban climate or the Kitabas climate in the center of the Pacific. Um and a lot of our elders passed away in that period. I understand about 30 elders uh, passed in one go mm-hmm. in the space of a couple of months after they had been dropped off on, on Rambi. It was cold. It was wet. Um, they weren't used to that climate at all. And unfortunately, a lot of traditional knowledge uh, also disappeared With these elders. So, in many ways, for the Barnabins, since the start of mining in 1900 and then since displacement in 1945, there's been a lot of cultural, social, and political upheaval, a lot of confusion, and a lot of chaos. And this has resulted in Barnabins sort of trying to piece together Different elements of our our culture, and so Bonabins sort of a, arrive in Fiji with all of this, all of this chaos of the past. But they were also quite resilient and strong, creative, savvy people. And I understand my great grandfather, my father keeps telling me this over and over again because he'd been made to work in the uh, Japanese war camps in, in the gardens, growing food for soldiers, like, for example, growing pumpkin. Um, when he got to Rambi and all they had was boxes of tinned food, he went straight into the bush and started trying to figure out how to grow food. Yeah. And so gardening has been in our family uh, for, for many generations um, since, um, and my father definitely picked up all of those um, gardening skills, and we also had an amazing food garden at home, but it sort of comes out of a history of trauma um, because banabans are fishermen. That's really what, what they're well known for, but they had to become good at other things. Um, yeah. Oh, wow, well, that's a lot to take in.
0: That is so traumatic. Uh, Katarina, you were born in Savu Savu, what was your family doing there?
1: My father was working in agriculture and he worked um, for the Ministry of Agriculture in Fiji for many, many, many years. He he was the first Banabin to go to university um, and he got a scholarship um, from the East West Centre to study agriculture, which is ironic because that's what phosphate was used for. Phosphate was used Um, globally, but especially in Australia and New Zealand as fertilizer for mass agriculture. So he was working, um, for the ministry in Sabu Sabu when I was born. And I had already had an older sibling, Teresia, um, who was born in Honolulu while my parents were doing their studies. Um, so I'm known as the Sabu Sabu baby. In the family, um, which is the closest place uh, to Rambi. And because of my father's job, he was always moving back and forth, I guess, between wherever he was posted by, by the Ministry for Agriculture, Fisheries and Forestry, and then our family on Rambi because my, um, my grandfather was there. My grandmother had already uh, – well, actually, she passed away when I was about – um three years old. But my father had a very large family on Rambi. He has nine siblings. Um so he was the oldest of ten in in the family. Um and they all had children and so uh my sisters and I had about fifty first cousins, not to mention <laughs> the second cousins and the third cousins. Um And most Banabans, like most islanders, know who their cousins are because you're always told, that's your family, that's your family, that's your family. (laughs) Um, And um, we sort of grew up going back and forth between Banaban contexts, Kiribati contexts, which were sometimes the same and sometimes different. You mentioned education. It was clearly important to your
0: parents. How did that influence you and your siblings?
1: I would say it was everything, mm-hmm. to be honest. And I would also say that that's a bit unusual for uh, a Banabin and Kiribati family, especially of, of the time that I grew up. So in the 80s and the 90s, I think more people today have opportunities for education. But when I was growing up, I had many cousins who maybe maybe reached year six. Um, our family was very, very unusual, definitely privileged um on the education front and that was squarely on my my father and my mother that kind of set the values for our family but surprisingly my sisters and i we don't remember being harassed by our parents to <laughs> study do your homework mm. do this do that like we, i can't even remember one conversation where you know we 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 told off for, you know, it was such ingrained in us that education was important, that we were self-motivated. We just did it.
0: Katarina, you, you went on to study in the US, Hawaii and Australia. And in 2022, you were the first Indigenous woman from the Pacific to be promoted to full professor at the Australian National University, as well as win Australian University Teacher of the Year <laughs> Award. How did yes. that
1: feel? Um, I think I was a bit shell shocked. <laughs> I think, especially with the National Teaching Award. Yeah. Um, I just, I just thought I wouldn't get anything of any kind. I don't ever really expect any awards for anything. But, um, you know, I think I recognized that I had been shaped by many teachers. Over my life, I I forgot to mention in that period where we were growing up and being encouraged, you know, in school, my my mom was a teacher. Mm -hmm. um, And um, my elder sister became a university teacher. um, And then I realized like I have all these aunties and cousins who are also teachers. So we were surrounded by good teachers growing up. And I had a very, I don't know, I had a bit of a stroppy, attitude, I think, (laughs) uh, towards teaching and what was the best kind and the most effective form of teaching. So I didn't always think all my teachers were particularly good. I think in the back of my head, I always thought, oh, we could do it differently. We could be teaching differently. We could be learning differently. I was a very creative kid. um, And so actually both my sisters, Whereas, well, we were always dancing and singing and drawing and doing a million things other than reading and writing and maths. So I just wished that my teachers were, would be more creative. And I think I always had this thing at the back of my mind that if I ever became a teacher, I would just do it completely differently. Um, and my teaching is quite creative and quite critical. It isn't like, I will make you the best Economist or the best political scientist. It's actually all about the Pacific. It's Mm -hmm. all about Oceania and it's about empowering all students, regardless of their background, to take a humble, creative, critical approach to engaging and understanding the Pacific, but especially to ask. Um, challenging questions of, you know, our histories, um, the impacts of colonialism, uh, the ways in which we're taught what's important and what's not important about the Pacific, ask critical questions about development, about defense, Mm. about security, about all of these things that we're told are super, super important to our region, Incredible
0: work you are doing. Uh, you're listening to Stories from the Pacific on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Bobby McCumber and I'm speaking with Pacific scholar, artist, and bunabun, Professor Katerina Tewa from the ANU. Uh, Katerina, you married an Australian man and had the
1: wedding in Rambi. What was the celebration like? Okay, so my Australian husband likes to remind me <laughs> that there were multiple weddings. <laughs> and um, I sometimes forget. The first one, um, I was pregnant uh, through all our weddings, um, so I claim mama pregnant brain um, for for remembering or forgetting different aspects of it. But we first got married in Melbourne, then we got married in Suva, then we had wedding celebrations on Rambi. So um, that way we connected all the different parts of our family. Um, It was quite an adventure. Um, We had these incredible feasts every day and then a ton of singing and dancing where essentially the female um, members of the family get to horribly tease my husband (laughs) harass him in in fact completely completely harass him Um, and it was just hilarious because basically all the women in my family regardless of their age from the youngest to the oldest um, is allowed to kind of make fun and play and dance around the groom and his brothers and anyone else in his party. So I had to explain to everyone what was going on um, with my my aunties and my cousins being absolutely outrageous um, to all the men in the party. And um, it, it was just wonderful. And because I was pregnant, though, and I almost thought it's a blessing, I was able to uh, excuse myself, uh, you know, by – 9.30 p.m. every night and and go and rest and go to sleep. But they went on and on until 5 a.m. the next day. You know it's interesting when you talk
0: about the tradition of the men marrying into a Kitabas family. My father is Australian, and my mother was an Ikitabas woman, and I just thought oh. my mum and my aunties were being cheeky, trying to get my dad up onto the dance floor constantly. Yes. But it's traditional. Yes.
1: <laughs> it is absolutely one hundred percent, and I mean that's probably the mild and tame version <laughs> of it. I bet. To be fair, yeah, it gets <laughs> it gets way. Way more outrageous. Um, and, and the hilarious thing is, so my husband's over two meters tall. He's six foot seven. Wow. And the average height of a Barnabin is probably five foot two. <laughs> so it was just a sight to see of all, you know, these tiny women, like kind of just absolutely harassing. <laughs> this giant, <laughs> this giant Australian in, in the upper and, and us trying to give him different moves to do. It's like, look, look, you can do this move. You can do that move. But frankly, dancing is not his forte in any way, shape or form. Um, so yeah, it, it was pretty hilarious. It was, it was so much fun. It was, it was a really, really wonderful time. <sighs>
0: I, I can see it because I've seen it with my own <laughs> eyes with my family as well. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> um, first-hand experience. Oh, absolutely. And my dad is also a terrible dancer. Anyway, love him to bits. So- though. there
1: <laughs> you go. There you go. <laughs>
0: uh, now the village composed a song. What is the story behind that?
1: Yeah. So uh, not everyone gets gets a song, um, you know, composed for them. So I recognise that it was something quite special for us. And again. You know, throughout my life, my father doesn't always talk about culture, but sometimes he knows exactly the right thing to do. So, so this was his idea. And he, you know, he recognized that this was something that was done, um, culturally and historical, historically for, for people in the past. But, but, you know, again, not a practice that everyone was gifted. You know, it, you have to line up quite a lot of elements. Um, for that, including, um, somebody has to compose, people have to workshop it, people have to practice. Um, so it's really, you know, something that in many Pacific cultures is a way of honoring and blessing. Uh, a union. Um, It happens all across the Pacific, but again, because there's been so much disruption to many of our cultural practices um, for Banabans, there's so many different rituals and protocols that used to happen in in the past that have been changed in the present. Um, It was the first, I have heard about it being done for other people, um, but I think it might've been the first, um, you know, song composed in honour of a wedding in our family. Um, and people were explaining to me that, you know, what the different elements were, what was required, what what has to be incorporated into the song. The fact that naming people is very, very important. So they have to sing your parents' names. Mm. Um, they have to mention the date. And that's, that's sort of the way the blessing works. Um, so we made sure we got lots of... Um, Recordings of that song, and you know, as a gift that we can share now with our children as well, because um, you know, it's it's important, but it's rare as well to be given that sort of cultural gift.
0: Katarina, how do you keep Bunun culture alive today?
1: Yeah, I wish I could say I was the most amazing at uh, transferring all this knowledge to my children. And in fact, when I was driving my daughter to school this morning um my my daughter my 14 year old is obsessed with ancient Greece and i've been like ancient Greece is amazing but what do you know anything about the ancient pacific <laughs> and you know i teach all of these students about the pacific most days. And I feel like sometimes as a mom, you know, you're running around trying to do all of these things for your children, but you're not always actually teaching them the same things that you're now valuing um, in your everyday and your working life. So one thing I did, though, teach both my children, um, something that I learned um, years ago, I taught them the names and I tried to get them to memorize the names of our old gods and then also link them to the different elements that they represented. So whether it was, you know, the stingray or the lightning or the turtle or the spider, we used to just have this little exercise where before bed we'd just go over the names of all of them and just remember them. And then um, I also explained to my daughters, one thing I did do was I named them in a way that has become... Um, more and increasingly more customary on Rambi. People will either name their children after family and ancestors or they will combine names. So this is a practice that has been increasing been increasing on Rambi where you take one bit of someone's name and you take the other bit of someone else's name and you create a new hybrid name. But you make sure you tell your children who who they're named after. So I named both of my daughters in that way with ancestral or my siblings' names, and I've explained to them why they've been named in that way, where they come from, and why that's important that they connect to the spirit Mm. of those women. Uh, Finally, Katarina, there are talks
0: to Mind Banaba again. Do you think your people could ever return to their ancestors and live on the island again?
1: You know, I think we'll always um, be living somewhere else, um, to be honest, um, you know, I think Banabans have made good, strong connections in Fiji and Rambi is home and Fiji is home, but Banaba is also home as well. And so I think Banaba could be um, regenerated and rehabilitated um, and revitalized to support a population for sure, especially a population of of caretakers and others who want to reconnect with their home island. Um, once you clean it up, anything is possible. I don't think there should ever be mining again on Banaba. In fact, I think it could become a site of world heritage, mm. world heritage for mining, world heritage for World War Two, for Banaban culture. We have some important um, ancestral um, remains that need to be honored and cared for on the island um so i definitely don't think remining or ever extracting any more phosphate from banaba is what we should be doing i think we should be trying to figure out how to keep banaba as a source of education culture history heritage those strong ancestral connections for our people and their ch- their children generations going forward i think we need better connection and transport between Rambi and Kiribati or Rambi and Banaba so people can visit if they want to. Mm. Um, and I think we should be sharing more stories about the island and why it's so important. So I'm trying to do that through my arts-based um, research and arts-based project, Banaba, which is an exhibition that's been traveling around Australia and New Zealand and is opening in Hawaii um, in November. So we've been working hard on that and that's sharing many stories of Banaba, but with respect To this current mining situation, I think it's so important for our people um, to actually feel that sense of connection to the island and to feel that sense of needing to safeguard it, to be custodians of the island and not to use it as, you know, a source of quick cash because the cash and the money is not sustainable, Mm. whereas the island itself, it took thousands of years to be created and it can be there for thousands of years going into the future. And so rather than treating it like something that's only good for mining, we should actually regenerate, rebuild, and heal the island. And I truly believe that what you do to the land and what you do to the ocean, you do to people. So whatever you do to that landscape, whatever you do to the island, you are doing to the people because land and people are one. They're one all across the Pacific. Land and people, ocean and people are one. So if we heal Banaba, we heal ourselves. Oh,
0: Katarina, thank you so much for sharing your story today.
1: Thank you so much, Bobby Rapa and Vinaka Le It's been wonderful talking to you. Oh, you too.
0: That was Katerina Tewa, a professor in the School of Culture, History and Language at the ANU you've been listening to Stories from the Pacific, I'm Bobby McCumber. To catch more great stories about incredible people from the Pacific, just search for ABC Pacific. This story was produced on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to I'm to i i Congratulations to the new couple. May God bless
1: you for the days of
0: your life. Your happiness will always be with you. If that's enough for my De na muri